Our scripture passage this morning is Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Then the man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray together. God, we pray for those who are sick among us. Know of some that have, uh, have tested positive for the virus. I pray that you would be with them. I'm thankful that their symptoms are mild and that you would heal them up and uh, those symptoms would stay mild. And pray for those uh, that, have, that are at home, um, whether it's quarantining to be safe and love others or not yet ready to come back due to pre-existing symptoms, that you would encourage them not only this morning, but the rest of the week. God, there's lots going on in our world. We want to be faithful. Help us to be so. God, we need your help. And as we think this morning, yet again, a beautiful picture painted by you, yet hated by the world, would you give us love? Would you give us courage? Would you help us to have the right balance of boldness and humility? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Heard a terrible joke recently. It's okay to laugh, even though it's terrible. There was a young guy, and uh, he was visiting. He was visiting a cemetery. He had lost his mom, so he went. And he was doing his his yearly visit and 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 putting flowers down, checking everything out. And he's on his way out. And as he's on his way out, he notices this guy bent down who's just just sobbing. He has just lost it. He's bent over and he's pounding the ground. And he seems to be praying. And he hears him saying, "Why'd you have to die? Why'd you have to die?" And the young man is just intrigued, so he waits a little bit, and he hesitantly walks over, and he asks, excuse me, I'm so, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but this outpouring of grief is so intense, I've never seen it. What happened? Did you lose a parent? Did you lose perhaps a child? And the man, the mourner, he kind of took a few seconds, he gained composure, and he looked up, and he said, I'm here mourning the death of my wife's first husband. <laughs> my wife's first husband. Someone has said there are three rings in marriage. You've got the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and suffering. Someone has said love is blind. Marriage is an eye-opener. And we can laugh. It's fine to laugh at such jokes. And the reason we can laugh is they're kind of funny. But also we can realize that marriage is hard for those of us who are married. And we know a lot of bad marriages out there, Right? One of my burdens is in the church is not just have marriages that survive, 
but marriages that flourish. Let me think about it a little bit. How many of you know those married couples that have been married, let's say 10, 15, 20 plus years, and you're like, I want what they have. That's what we want. But we can joke because often it's not the case, right? We speak of marriage as a, a ball and chain. We denigrate it. We downplay it. We talk about it being so limiting, even enslaving. But I submit, <clears throat> good humor aside, we ought not to speak that way of marriage in the church. We ought to speak with honor about holy matrimony. So what have we seen? We've seen in Genesis 1 to 3 the creation of the world, the creation of the man, the woman. And now at the culmination of creation, we have the institution of marriage. God had created man to work the ground. And we saw last week the woman to help the man work it. And we saw that God introduces the woman to the man, the author of romance. Look again with me at Genesis 2.23. He brings the woman to the man and the man says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Therefore, the man leaves his father and mother and he holds fast to his wife. Now, this being the first couple, Adam and Eve had no parents to leave, right? It's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons they were one of the most happiest couples on earth. They didn't have in-laws. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I was talking to a friend and he was like, you know, my mother-in-law, she lives about two hours away. It's really a great distance. We get to see her pretty regularly, but not too often. The only problem is it's like 40 minutes by broom. <laughs> Y'all are sleepy this morning. Just kidding. <clears throat> Men... Leave parents. Women are given by parents, which is why even to this day we ask in ceremonies, we ask the father, don't we? Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Newlyweds must leave and cleave. He says, now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, which is a new kinship group. What we're talking about is a new family, new family unit. And in this day, it was actually what's called a, a patrilocal culture. So the man would actually stay near or even sometimes in the village of his parents, and the woman would leave hers and join his. We sort of see that today because we have a woman who takes the name of the man. Some, sometimes, or even increasingly, this, this is opposed, especially among feminists. They don't like that. I'm not taking the name of a man. I'm keeping my name. The irony is her maiden name is the name of a man. It just happens to be her father, not her husband. But when someone gets married, this relationship to the parents, it's forever changed. And listen, this can be a hard adjustment on both sides. But a couple's love for parents must be surpassed both in intensity and extent by one's love for their spouse. There's this new loyalty, this new priority. The relationships remain, but they remain in a new and different way than they were before the wedding day. If you're not married but want to be, this is really important. You're not going to plan on it now. You've got to leave. You've got to leave and you've got to cleave. And parents, you've got to let them. When I do wedding ceremonies, during the ceremony, I will call out the parents of the bride during it. And I'll ask them, will you joyfully release your child to the care of their spouse and embrace them as their own? Will you release them? If so, say, we will. And so parents, if you're get, getting towards that stage, make sure you let them go. Release them. Let them, let them leave. Don't become the monster-in-laws. 
They leave and cleave. And then notice he says, they become one flesh. And one flesh clearly refers to the physical union, but it's bigger than that. Also the complete personal community of one man and one woman, complete unity, a profound solidarity, total personal fellowship. Ray Orland writes that this one flesh here in Genesis 2 is the profound fusion of two lives into one. One shared life together by the mutual consent and covenant of marriage. It's the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new circle of shared existence with one's partner. Everything is shared. The vision becomes shared. The mission becomes shared. The children are obviously shared. The checking accounts should be shared. The goals are shared and the bed is shared. And in this context is the only place that a bed should be shared. Context of marriage, one man and one woman covenantally committed to one another for a lifetime. This is the arena, the environment that God created sex to take place in. And remember, God created it. It is a good thing. It is a wonderful thing. It is a precious gift, so precious, that's why we have so many boundaries around it. That's what you do with precious things, don't you? You protect them and you guard them. There truly is no such thing as casual sex. It's much too important for anything casual, contrary to the world's view of things. Today, we live in the era of the hookup. The idea of just casual intercourse, no strings attached, just meeting a biological urge, and the goal is not to become emotionally attached. So one recent book talking about the pervasive mindset on college campuses quotes a female college student to say this, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. But that's impossible by the nature of the thing, by the way God has designed things. It's too important. It's the most you can do in a relationship, right? Which is why the world speaks of it the way the world speaks of it. Going all the way. Going to home plates. Sealing the deal. It belongs exclusively to the only relationship where you can go all the way in every arena. Legally, economically, socially, spiritually, physically. God designed it to be a part of this larger one flesh union of marriage. And it bonds people together like nothing else. Secular biology has been really good for Christians. And they've shown that oxytocin is released during the act, which creates this desire to attach. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons we have a pandemic of pornographic addiction. It's rewiring the brain. What was meant to be one flesh with another person is becoming one flesh with pixels. That's why it's so important to guard it in the context of marriage. It's emotionally bonding. It's spiritually bonding. It's even chemically bonding. And so when a person sleeps around or has sex outside of marriage, what's happening is there's this one flesh that is meant for one person for a lifetime, and it's ripped apart in a way that God designed to never happen. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute 
becomes one body with her. For as it is written, Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. This is this word. It's a, it's a, it's a word that's a broad meaning. Basically, any kind of sexual sin. The word is porneia. Sounds familiar, right? What is the posture of the church toward sexual immorality? We flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You become one. You're united. It bonds two individuals in a unique way. This is why the unbeliever has way too low a view of sexuality, friends. It is so much more than just a physical organism with urges, which is why God takes sexual immorality so seriously, dreadfully seriously, eternally seriously. I want you to feel this, mostly because this is where we're being discipled away from this vision. So I want you to hear this. I want to read a few passages. Let me read from Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, same word, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Go into the next book, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality, same word, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. I think today's church takes this way too lightly. Must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There can be no more serious warning. Let me flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 3. For this is the will of God. What's the will of God? We need to discover the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. One more, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We need to be serious about this. We need to be rigorous. We need to name it for what it is. Sex before marriage is not a Christian option. But neither is what's called cohabitation. Neither is living together, shacking up. Shacking up is cheap. 
Forget the shack, build a house. And again, even though it's the way of the world, listen, between 1970 and 1994, 1994 was a long time ago, but between 70 and 94, the number of unmarried couples living together rose from around 500,000 to 3.7 million. According to the National Marriage Project, about 60% of young adults in America say they plan to live together before marriage. It's the new normal, not for us. This one flesh relationship is reserved for the covenant commitment of marriage. Let me speak to the young men for a moment, maybe that are dating or engaged or plan to. You are responsible for the purity of the relationship. Keep the walls high. Honor that woman and honor her father. And even more than that, honor her heavenly father. She is a daughter of God, first and foremost. Keep the walls high. Earn her trust, even if she's the one initiating. When desire meets integrity, she needs to know you choose integrity every time. Right now and 10 years into marriage. It's a special gift. And because it's so special, it needs to be guarded. It needs to be protected. And remember, friends, God created out of nothing. Remember, creation ex nihilo. His canvas was blank, right? I think we see things and we think, well, it had to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. His canvas was blank. It could be drab. It could be shades of gray, no color. It could, everything could taste like oatmeal, right? We could literally have one gender. He didn't have to create two genders. There could be one gender and we could multiply and fill the earth by snapping our fingers. Child, child, child. He can do what he wanted. But look instead what he has given us. What a gift. How gracious. How creative. How generous. Look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They experienced a relational bliss that the rest of kind will never know. They were totally without sin. Free from a sinful nature, completely open to one another, no fear, no shame, no fear of exploitation, at total ease with one another. What a beautiful picture. Let's not lose sight of this again. Our culture's down on marriage, but in the narrative of Scripture, the institution of marriage here is the goal of creation. Finally now, creation is perfected. Not just a lifestyle choice, but the foundation of society, the first and foundational unit of society. And so Christians, married or not, should have a high view of marriage. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. And so we need to esteem it. We need to honor it. We need to celebrate it. We need to work at it. We need to train for it. And we need to start young. Because, friends, being married is way more important than whatever vocation might be chosen. Little Johnny and little Susie, whatever vocation they have, will take a back seat to being a husband and a father and a wife and a mother. I'm first a husband, I'm second a father, and then I work as a pastor. We say, well, what about singles? Genesis talked a lot about marriage, making babies and stuff. Are singles second-class Christians? No, not at all. Not at all. Made in the image of God and actually with unique opportunities and advantages to live undividedly for the Lord. I want you to see it. Flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's start at verse 26. First Corinthians 7, I think, is often misread in verse 26, and there's a couple others, but we'll just look at 26, that help us to see that it's actually not eternally normative. There's something unique going on here. Look at verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Mentions it again in verse 31. Something's going on here in the first century that's informing what the Apostle Paul's saying, the present distress. I'll tell you my opinion, so there's, there's no verse for this. My opinion is that it's the impending destruction of Jerusalem. We say, what, what does that matter? In that day, that was huge, huge, huge. It was the end of Judaism. And Jesus said it would happen within a generation. And so I think the, Paul, the Apostle Paul's saying, there ain't no telling how this is all going to shake out. So in view of the present distress, here's how I'm going to instruct you. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you had wrote, so they had wrote, Paul's answering, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they were thinking. They were thinking, you know what? We shouldn't do this anymore. They were kind of Gnostic. We've talked about that. But verse 2, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. All the ladies in the first service said amen after I read that. <laughs> Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Of course, Paul wasn't married. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Each has his own gift from God. So I think really the best way to think about it biblically are there are those who are single who plan to be married, and then there are those with the gift of celibacy. And I think that gift's actually rare. How do you know that you have it? You have no desire to be married. You don't burn with passion. So that may be you. It's normally a, a smaller subset of the human race, but that may be you. And if that is you, notice the advantage you have. Or if you're single now, looking to be married at a time, notice the advantages that he lists in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man's anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So if that's you, redeem this stage of life for the glory of God. Pour yourself in to serving the Lord, serving the church. You have some freedoms that couples just do not have. And so use it. Be intentional. Be hospitable. Live on mission. Go all in. For those of you who are single but you don't have the gift of celibacy, let me encourage you to begin, if you haven't already, premarital training today. Regardless of your age, read some solid books. We've got some on our website under resources. Talk with 
older couples. And as you wait, be preparing yourself. Be getting your house in order. Pursuing holiness. Growing in understanding of the word. Getting out of debt. Staying out of debt. And don't intentionally delay marriage. Especially guys, remember Genesis 2.18. It's not good that man should be alone. So young men, don't intentionally postpone it. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me also speak to our young men. You're the pursuer here. It's a lost art. You pursue a woman. Don't give her any questions. You make clear. You have the, the conversation. You go after the woman if that's you. You need help. There's nothing that the staff likes talking to more about this. So come help us. I stalked my wife. I call it a successful pursuit. <laughs> so listen, one of the primary takeaways, what we see here of these verses, is that marriage is God's idea. It cannot be redefined by us or by the states. I appreciate the way our confession ties all this together when it talks about marriage and the family. Here's how it defines it. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It's God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards, and the means for procreation of the human race. It summarizes it. One man, one woman, covenantally committed for a lifetime. And with that definition, notice what all is excluded that's becoming popular in our culture. One man, one woman, covenantly committed for a lifetime. Well, clearly, things like bestiality and polygamy are excluded. Now, those aren't popular today yet. But notice also homosexuality is excluded. It's one man, one woman, covenantally committed for a lifetime. And Scripture is explicitly clear about this. This is where we need courage and clarity. It's the best way we can love our neighbors. Listen to what Romans 1 says. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. I think he's talking about Genesis 1. Contrary to creation. Contrary to the created order. I don't want to get graphic, but just look at our anatomy. There's something that's natural, and there's something that's totally unnatural. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. just couldn't be any clearer. Let me read 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. There is a plethora of voices out there wanting to deceive you. God says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's just crystal clear. But notice the power of the gospel. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, Scripture has one voice on this issue. 
and it's crystal clear and it's the same from beginning to end. And we should expect the world to be against us. Clearly it is. I, th- I really do think there will, my, I will see jail time in my lifetime for the things I'm saying. We call it hate speech. But here's what really frustrates. I expect the world not to get it. I expect the world, right? Jesus told us to expect that. Here's what frustrates me is those in the church who are trying to say that scripture is compatible with homosexual practice, trying to distort the Bible. And there's tons and tons of clever scholarly opinions to make the scripture say that which it simply does not say. And I appreciate when someone's honest. And so I want to share with you a couple honest New Testament scholars. One's a Methodist leader named William Kent, and he says this. The scriptural texts in the Old and New Testaments condemning homosexual practice are neither inspired by God nor otherwise of enduring Christian value. Considered in the light of the best biblical, theological, scientific, and social knowledge, the biblical condemnation of homosexual practice is better understood as representing time and place-bound cultural prejudice. Notice what he just said. He acknowledged that they're there, which I appreciate. It does say what it says, but you know what? God didn't inspire that, and it really has no value. That was just prejudice. Now we know. Always throw your red flag up when you hear a Bible teacher. Now we know. Listen to New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson. You've probably never heard that name, but in the, in the, the academy, he's a world-renowned New Testament scholar. Listen to what he says. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex union can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. Friends, this is a scary place to be. And here's why it's so scary. The passage I just read in 1 Corinthians 6 that said the practice of homosexual practice, practice of homosexuality will not inherit in the kingdom of Christ. Do not be deceived. If that's true, for us to permit what God forbids is to help send people to hell. So the most loving thing we can do is tell the truth. It's a scary place to be when you have Bible scholars setting it aside and putting the authority in us. So what we're going to see in Genesis 3 was the problem. Did God really say? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to be a Bible-believing Christian in years to come. And so we need courage and we need love, but we also need to expect to be hated. Jesus told us to. So marriage is one woman and one man for a lifetime. So polygamy and bestiality and homosexuality, those are excluded by definition, but so is divorce for a lifetime. Now, I do think scripture permits two, two areas where divorce can be legitimate. One is when adultery is committed. It's Matthew 5, Matthew 19. It breaks the bond of the covenant of marriage. The person will be free to divorce and free to remarry. Reconciliation is always the, the preferred option, but it, sometimes that doesn't happen and God gives us that concession. The second one is in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's when a, a believer is abandoned by an unbeliever. 
But those are rare exceptions. In general, God's will is oneness for a lifetime. And I know there's many, 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 many in America and the church and even at Southside that are divorced. And some of you were divorced and it wasn't biblical. And here's what Christian maturity does. Christian maturity is able to say that was sin. That was sin and own it. Shouldn't have done it. Now I know better. I sin before God. And then you know what the next step is after confession? Flying to the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we confess our sin and we turn from it and we resolve to live faithfully from this day forward. For those of you who are married or will be married, stay married. You made a vow before God. You know, that's the purpose of the vows, right? It's not just about butterflies and a cool video. They're vows before God and before the church that I will stick with this man. I will stick with this woman. So keep your vows. Stay married. Listen to King Jesus. King Jesus believed that these early chapters of Genesis were crucial. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read? Pharisee, don't you know Genesis 1 and 2? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, quote, Genesis 2:24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So fight for a flourishing marriage. You know, a flourishing marriage didn't just providentially or luckily end up that way. Health, the healthiest marriage is there because of blood, sweat, tears, and daily repentance. If your marriage is on the rocks, come talk to us. We want to help. God is in the business of restoring marriages that have seemingly no hope. Marriage is one woman, one man for a lifetime. But listen, if we stopped here, we'd miss the ultimate points. Let me read, let me read one little statement there from that confession. What, what marriage is. It's God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church. I want to highlight the end of Ephesians 5, but let me read some verses before that, before we get there. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Ephesians 5.31, quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery... Remember, in the Bible, mystery is not something we can't figure out. In the Bible, mystery is something now revealed that was previously hidden. That's what Paul means by mystery. Something that was murky before, but now we have clarity. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Are you tracking this here? Way back, well, before creation, God planned the end from the beginning. But as God creates the institution of marriage, what does he have on his mind and heart? The gospel. The point, the very reason, the main reason God created the institution of marriage was that it might be a display of Christ and the church. Let's scrap the ball and chain language. This is about Christ and the church. Marriage is chock full of significance because it pictures the heart of the gospel. And so, friends, let's be a countercultural people, a contrast society, those who keep their vows, those who stay pure until marriage, those who defend marriage between one man and one woman, those who preach a true and faithful gospel because of our faithful marriages. And may God give us the grace to do it. Let's pray together. God, I pray for those in this congregation that are tempted to impurity. And I pray that you'd wake them up and they would see the seriousness of it. Would you, would you wake them up for the fight? Would you wake them up for the battle? Would you grant repentance? Would they hate it? Would they flee from it? Would there be a resolve among every person here to flee sexual immorality? Pray for those who are single but desire to be married. Would you elevate their view of marriage? Would they keep the walls high and stay pure? Would they take marriage so seriously they would begin training? Even now, whatever their major is, whatever their life situation is, whatever their career is, all that's a backseat to being a husband or being a wife. Pray for those with the gift of celibacy. God, that you would renew in them a passion for you. May they see their situation as uniquely advantageous to pour themselves into your work, to serve, to serve the church, to serve the members of the church, to be hospitable, to be on mission. Give them more opportunities than they know what to do with. God, we're thankful for marriage. Pray that those of us married would take it seriously, would cherish it, would work towards it, not be rocked to sleep by the regularity, but strive to preach the gospel through the way we live. Christ might be exalted. We pray it in his name. Amen.